What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Good morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a very special show for you all today and another very special guest. As you can see, Katie Halper is joining me uh, virtually. Katie, so much. Thank you so much for co-hosting today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so glad to uh, have you with us. Not in studio, unfortunately, but where are you based? You're in New York, right? I'm in the New York State area, yes. Okay. Not, a speci- not specific my... whereabouts. That's <laughs> right. very, yeah. very civil libertarian of you. <laughs> yeah, right. Just too risky. You, you know better than I do, Robbie, about the risks of revealing too much to the state. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. what's on deck today? Well, we do have a great lineup today. Journalist Matt Taibbi will be here to discuss an enormous military spending bill that the House passed quietly last week. Plus, we'll dig into the state of the economy with a couple of esteemed economists. Looking forward to that. Then journalist Abby Martin will join us to talk about her confrontation with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken about the slain Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. And Angie Speaks weighs in on AOC's cuffless arrest. But first... CNN is reporting that a potential federal investigation into Hunter Biden's business dealings is, in fact, heating up. Prosecutors are nearing a critical juncture as they weigh possible charges and prosecutors confront Justice Department guidelines. Very interesting to avoid bringing politically sensitive cases close in close proximity to an election. So that's according to people who are briefed on the matter. The DOJ says there's an unwritten rule that prosecutors avoid politically sensitive cases within 60 days of an election. Some members of the agency have debated whether the rules should apply in this instance, since Biden isn't actually on the ballot in the midterms. Uh, Prosecutors have turned their focus to tax violations and gun-related charges, but Republicans want more info on his foreign business dealings. Just yesterday, Republicans on the House Oversight Committee sent a letter to Biden's energy secretary demanding to know why the Biden administration sold oil from the reserves to a Chinese company linked to Hunter Biden's investment firm. The letter says, quote, the decision to sell to Unipec raises questions about why the Biden administration is selling oil from the SPR to China, especially when the sale may enrich Hunter Biden. So, yeah, I don't know how you feel about this, but the fact that it's hinging on the guns and the the gun and the tax issues, the gun issue I understand is that he he went out and purchased a firearm, but he, he wasn't supposed to have one because of drug arrested, uh, drug connections, uh, arrests related to drugs. So, but that's not really, I don't know, that like none of that is the kind of salacious kind of political scandal, the influence peddling that people are really interested in because we're trying to figure out the extent to which it involves his father. So if that's really all it is, I, you know, I don't know that that's of, of great pu- public interest. Right. I mean, I think that honestly, at this point, it would be better, a better look for both Hunter Biden and Joe Biden for them to actually go after Hunter, because I think the bigger scandal here is kind of the double standard, the two tier justice system. I think people don't really care about these kind of these things. I mean, I think we're pretty used to scandals of uh, president's kids, thanks to Donald Trump. Um, But I, I do think the most disturbing thing about all of the Hunter stuff is just seeing that 
you know, like with the with the substance abuse, I'm glad that Biden is supportive of his son's struggle with substance abuse and doesn't want to throw him in jail. I just wish he would have the same uh, feelings towards people who aren't his son. Yeah, absolutely. As we I think I brought this up yesterday as we discuss, you know, what's happening to Brittany Griner, for instance. Uh, it's like, yes, she should not be right. in prison in Russia for, you know, whatever substance she was carrying. But people in the U.S. are in prison for doing that. Right. And why exactly. is Biden obsessed with freeing her when he could he could I mean, fine, be obsessed with freeing her, but you could literally free people like today who have done that same thing, right. who are in U.S. prisons. It makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Maybe it's like our lane. It's supposed to be America's lane to over-incarcerate people for substance abuse issues. Mm -hmm. And so he's feeling uh, jealous, competitive with Putin about that. What do you feel about this, um, this sort of don't prosecute people close to the election kind of informal rule? I have heard about this before seems wildly open to abuse and different interpretation. It's, I mean, it's not a literal rule. It's just like a department policy. And a, you know, they've reiterated not to do that. But it's, you know, it's weird because, well, A, it's, it's Hunter Biden. It's not actually bringing charges against someone who is facing, who is you know, an elected person. And Biden is not technically on the ballot for the midterms anyway. And Hunter Biden isn't on the ballot at all. So I don't know. It seems kind of odd to, I guess, avoid charging someone if there's some, if there's legitimate reason to charge them, which there may not be. But just because of that, I don't know. Yeah, especially because it doesn't seem like they apply that standard with any consistency, which just, right. again, I think creates the the I was going to say the illusion, but I think creates the reality or contributes to the reality that there is that that this is a political issue. Yeah. Or that the lack of, of pursuit of Hunter Biden has been a political issue. And why then why didn't that apply to not that either of us are like, oh, poor Hillary. Woe is Hillary. But why didn't that apply to, you know, the FBI? Yeah, right. I guess that was a, that's a different agency. But it's it's it had a similarly it had some effect on the election. Maybe, you know, they want to blame the whole thing on that. I don't know about that. Right. But um, you, <laughs> why didn't she? She did not benefit from that rule, certainly. Right. And you can't imagine them doing anything like that with Donald Trump. Right. Oh, yeah. right. Can you imagine? No, we can't. We, we, we want to charge Donald Trump. But we're going to we're going to wait until after the election. I can't yeah. uh, I can't uh, I can't really imagine that. Yeah. No. Again, and not I'm hardly woes me for Donald Trump. But we're just talking, speaking to the consistency or lack of consistency in these rules. Right, right, which is a huge problem in the criminal justice system at all, how, you know, some people charge with some things, some people not at all. Um, so, right. um, yeah. I'm just hoping that Hunter gets to go back to his artwork. I don't want the scandal to get in the way of his, his artistic output. <laughs> Certainly the artwork. <laughs> he, uh, he, are you a fan of uh, George Bush's artwork as well? Uh, I, oh, yeah, big, big, yeah. It's, i especially fond of his... Uh, portrait of Putin, or as he called him, Pooty Poot Poot. I don't know if viewers are old enough to remember that, but that was his affectionate nickname for him. All right. Well, new text messages recovered this week by the Daily Mail could expose Hunter's dealings even further. In a December 2018 text to Halle Biden, Hunter confided about feeling alone 
with the stress of his business dealings. The text says, quote, I find myself very alone in dealing with the aftermath of the abduction and likely assassination of my business partner, the arrest and conviction of my client, the chief of intelligence of the People's Republic of China, the retaliation of the Chinese in the arrest, CIA operatives in China, my suspected involvement in brokering a deal with Putin directly for the largest sale of oil, gas, assets inside Russia to China, and dad's running for president. So that's, uh, that seems like, <laughs> like a lot of text about potentially illicit involvements or dealings that would make a more interesting uh, investigation and prosecution. But I guess, we're, I guess we're just not doing that right now. Yeah. I mean, that almost sounds like someone hacked into his cell phone and wrote a text. Like, it's so self-incriminating. Yeah, yeah. It almost <laughs> seems made up. Right, because of all the yeah, all the references to the illicit thing, and, and then references dad's presidential ambit. Like yeah. it gets it all in there, and yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. right. This is a very this is a very clumsy person who clearly benefited right from nepotism because of like the irresponsibility, the lack of competence, the drug addiction, everything. And and I take your point early. I we should be sympathetic to people who you know are very publicly going through addiction and bad behavior. And right, I you know I don't want him locked up over drug abuse, just like right. I don't want anyone locked up um, over drug abuse. But, it, you know, if he was selling the Biden name, if he was, you know, being hired or contracted by foreign governments to sit on the, these boards or broker these deals specifically because they knew he had a line to his dad, um, you know, that is wrong. And then we got to find out to what extent um, uh, the big guy, right, the big guy is referenced in some of these messages, that's Joe Biden, um, knew about this, and, and if he went along with it. And again, maybe the answer is no. I don't think we've seen any evidence thus far right. that, that uh, Joe Biden was anything other than just kind of being supportive of his son, but you don't know, and that, that does have to be investigated. Right, yeah, it definitely has to be looked into. I mean, I honestly, again, think that this is beneficial for the Bidens for it to be investigated. Because I think the bigger scandal is the uh, suggestion that Hunter Biden is not subjected to kind of the rule of law that other people mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. But I do hope we can look at some more texts from Joe Biden to Hunter because they're hilarious. They're so Biden. They have all these grammatical errors, all these all caps, all these ellipses. So just bo hopefully uh, those boomer, will be turned boomer into text evidence. speech. Well, hey, we're pre-boomer, yeah. right? This is the greatest generation. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, thank you, Katie. Uh, next up, I'll tell you what's on my radar. Stay tuned. Well, we have some breaking news. President Joe Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. His team announced uh, just a short while ago. This is, I believe, his first go round with uh, the disease. I'll read this statement from Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. This morning, President Biden tested positive for COVID-19. He's fully vaccinated, twice boosted, experiencing mild symptoms. He has begun taking Paxlovid, consistent with CDC guidelines. He will isolate at the White House and will continue to carry out all of his duties during this time, he has been in contact with members of the White House staff by phone this morning, will participate in planned meetings at the White House via Zoom, uh, consistent with White House protocols, which go above and beyond CDC guidance. He'll continue to work in isolation until he tests negative. Once he tests negative, he will return to in-person work. And then the White House will provide daily updates on his uh, condition per standard protocol for any positive case at the White House. The White House Medical Unit will inform all close contacts 
of the president during the day today, including any members of Congress. So his last test was on Tuesday, and he was negative at that time. So there you have it. President Biden uh, has COVID, um, probably not something to worry about too much, even though he is in a, in a more at risk category, given his age, um, he is vaccinated and boosted and you know has the best medical care of anyone in the world. And it sounds that so far he's not, um, he's, he doesn't sound extremely sick. So um, don't, don't know what else to, to, to say about it. It's, you know, he's finally got it. I, I've long taken the view that it's just a matter of time for basically everyone on earth before they get COVID that you can, you know, you can delay it. You can, obviously you can do things to be more cautious if you want, but you know, people, um, I, maybe this is, I, if there's anyone out there who still thinks, well, I'm vaccinated and I do everything right and I wear a mask everywhere, so I'm gonna be safe from COVID. I hope that's the nail in the coffin for that thinking because like this is a super highly contagious disease. Um, you, you, you can do whatever, you know, follow whatever protocols you want, but like it's not just bad people get it or something. You, everyone can get it. Um, so, and I'm sure that he'll have milder symptoms because he's been vaccinated and boosted. Yeah, I'm interested though about this. Uh, so he it says he's taking Paxlovid. Do you know? Uh, have you heard about the kind of the Paxlovid rebound? Um, a whole thing. Have you heard about that, Katie? Mm -hmm. So we've talked yeah. about that a little bit on the show. I think Kim did a radar on it. And uh, there, there is definitely something to it. There are some people take, uh, take Paxlovid. Um, if you're, you know, so they prescribe it to you. If, if, you, if you have COVID and you're in an at-risk category, they give you Paxlovid. And then there are some people who they take Paxlovid, they feel better. And then once the, I think it's a five-day treatment and then once they're done with Paxlovid they, they test negative and then later they test positive again and then some of those people are actually more sick than they were the first time through and doctor this happened to Dr. Fauci he had COVID just recently and he said on on TV gave an interview about it where he appeared to go through what has been described as the Paxlovid rebound he said that he took Paxlovid he was very mildly ill took Paxlovid afterward tested negative then tested positive again and was actually more sick. So Kim pointed out when she discussed this that they really only tested Paxlovid, uh, which did have a very dramatic improvement in symptoms, but when it was tested on people who weren't vaccinated at all. They had really not done uh, trials or testing on people who had been vaccinated. So it's not, it's not clear to me it's offering necessarily an improvement for people who are vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, yes, you know, throw, throw the kitchen sink at this thing. But uh, but uh, anyway, anyway, so you, you haven't seen any of that. So I'll be interested mm -hmm. to see if Biden uh, encounters something similar to that. Yeah, no, I haven't. I've been I've been blessed with not having covid yet. You haven't had so it yet. Didn't no. So didn't have a chance to take any medicine for it. Is, is this is this why you're you're remote you're uh, remote you didn't you didn't want to sit next to possible disease vector Robbie Suave? No, I'm I was willing to come in. I'm going to come in next time, hopefully. Yeah, All right, this great. was just the logistics. Yeah, no, great, I don't consider good. you uh, persona non grata, <laughs> well, biologically speaking, or or uh, culturally. Oh, thank you, thank you. I, I appreciate yeah. that. I'm going to get canceled now. <laughs> you're going to follow me. Uh, yeah. Follow, so you're not uh, you, you wouldn't at the last minute say do a change of venue. No, I, you know, I, I hear you, uh, but this has to be a yeah. safe space. So I will I will not participate in conversation with Robbie Swab. Right. I will. I appreciate yeah. that.
All right. Well, we, of course, wish, uh, you know, Joe Biden a speedy recovery. So Donald Trump obviously had uh, had COVID uh, right before the it was when was that was in the fall during the I yeah. got it at the the like the Amy Coney Barrett garden party or something that was a right. super spreader event. Super spreader. Um, yeah. And then recovered. I wonder I wonder when we'll have like ever again a president who doesn't get COVID during his right. terms just because. This thing is uh, is going to be with us. So yeah, anyway, and I do want to say really quickly that I'm sure there are a lot of people who often this is kind of people think this is like an own like of someone who got vaccinated. Like, oh, look, they got it anyway. No one's saying that you won't get it. But it is what right. it does really deal with at this point. Right. Is how severe your reaction is or right. how severe. Well, your they did are, say so. at the beginning, right, that if you're vaccinated, you are extremely unlikely to get it. And that uh, I remember watching that. I mean, that's what that's what, you know, many experts said. So I believe that to be true. And then it, it seemed like it was true for a little while. And then it was like, well, there's going to be breakthrough cases like, oh, there's going to be a lot of right, breakthrough cases. Variants. Then it's going to be, oh, yeah. every single person who has the vaccine will eventually get a breakthrough case. Right. right. Uh, um, do you think it, it affects Biden's image uh, at all as you know, there's so much so much concerns about his health and his maybe maybe his, his mental Right, his cancer. He has cancer, and uh, obviously he does not have cancer. Or, or if he does, right. hasn't disclosed it, despite that statement right. he made. Do you think it 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 will further solidify, uh, fairly or not? You know, it's a, an image that people have that, like, you know, he's old and he's weak and oh, he's okay. not kind of up to the job. No, I think that honestly, this is one of those things that people who already dislike Biden or people who don't like, who are maybe what, what would I call them? Uh, COVID skeptics are just going to see this as proof that it's all a, a, a trick and a hoax, that COVID's a hoax, and they'll see it as uh, his just desserts. And then people who support Biden will just say, look, uh, he got vaccinated and boosted, and thank God, and he's going to be okay. Uh, in terms of people thinking that, that he looks frail, I kind of feel like the people who would think that aren't going to see COVID as a sign of that, given how mm -hmm. contagious it is. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. Well, but we'll, we'll have we'll, to see what his response is like. We'll have to see what the symptoms are like. Yeah, we'll have to. I mean, if, obviously, if it gets much sicker, I think I think that would genuinely be bad. Uh, for, obviously, it would be bad for him if he gets much sicker. Right. He could actually be right. at some risk, and it would you know it would make it look like um, that that he's maybe not up to the job. But uh, but presumably right. and hopefully Whereas, he won't have that reaction. Yeah, Tr Trump being Trump, of course, he kind of as as bad as as it was in some ways because he was so dismissive of taking precautions. I do feel like with him, he had it either way. You know, he'd either have mild symptoms and they would have said, look, you see, it's who cares about the uh, masks or because if he had had strong symptoms, they would have been like, well, look at how robust he is. And as long as you're healthy, you're not going to die from it. Mm -hmm. But with Biden, it's a slightly different calculation. Mm. All right, well, we'll continue to report on this if there's any new developments with Biden's health situation. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, during the 77-minute period in which nearly 400 police officers took no collective action to engage and neutralize the Robb Elementary mass shooter who had trapped dozens of dead and wounded second-grade students inside a classroom with him, one officer can be seen heading down the hallway toward the killer's location, according to recently released body cam footage that went viral on social media recently. 
The officer was Ruben Ruiz of the Uvalde Police Department. Ruiz was aware of the situation because he had received a call from his wife, Eva Morales, who was a Robb Elementary teacher. Unfortunately, Morales was actually trapped inside the classroom with the shooter. She had been shot and she was dying of a gunshot wound. In this footage, this new body cam footage, Ruiz can be seen hurrying past other officers and approaching the classroom, gun in hand. He is stopped. He is held back as he says, she said she's shot. He protests that to no avail. Watch this. Ruiz previously appeared in some footage that had been released uh, last week, I believe, or before that, where he could be seen checking his phone. And this was cited by some as further evidence of the Uvalde police's lack of urgency at the matter. But now it's more understandable. He was actively prevented from confronting the shooter. His phone was his only means of contacting his wife. Uh, quote, what happened to Ruiz is that he tried to move forward into the hallway. He was detained and they took his gun away from him and escorted him from the scene, said Texas Department of Public Safety Director Steve McGraw during a hearing last month. So this recent footage matches that description of what took place. Actions taken by other police officers to actively prevent one of their own from attempting to resolve the situation are consistent with what was happening outside the school, where officers restrained and even handcuffed parents who were desperately trying to intervene. One mother, Angelique Gomez, was handcuffed and arrested, but escaped custody, entered the school anyway, where she actually found and rescued her own children. Here she is explaining what happened. Right away as I parked, um, U.S. Marshals started coming toward my car saying that um, I wasn't allowed to be parked there. And uh, he said, well, we're going to have to arrest you because you're being very uncooperative. I said, well, you're going to have to arrest me because I'm going in there and I'm telling you right now, I don't see none of y'all in there. Y'all are standing with snipers and y'all are far away. I'm, if y'all don't go in there, I'm going in there. He right, immediately put me in cuffs. Once I jumped it, I went to my son's class and I knocked on the door and I remember the teacher saying, um, I'm like, hey, they're already, they're already um, bulge cutting the fence to get me. She's like, you think we have time to get out? I said, you'll have time. I'm going to run for my other son. The decision by Uvalde police to wait and wait and wait and wait before confronting the shooter runs counter to all police training on school mass shooting scenarios. Ever since the Columbine mass shooting in 1999, law enforcement has been instructed to immediately rush the shooter without waiting for backup, better equipment, or for the right moment. Uvalde police had also received that training that called for them to confront the mass shooter without delay, according to the New York Times. But on May 24th, 2022, when the shooter attacked the school, the police did everything wrong for more than an hour. They waited for more officers, for tactical gear, for better weaponry. They incomprehensibly failed to procure a key for a door that was not even locked. It was failure after failure after failure, even though some people were still alive inside the classroom, frantically dialing 911 for help. A swifter response, yes, it would have put the officers' lives in greater danger, absolutely, but it would have also allowed medical personnel to assist the victims more quickly. It's not clear how many lives could have been saved this way, if any, to be clear. But every minute the survivors remained trapped in that classroom increased the risk to them to say nothing of their mental anguish, the trauma they'll be dealing with for the rest of their lives. Ruiz's wife, Eva Morales, she died of her wounds after speaking with him when he wasn't allowed to go in and try to rescue her. 
So, Katie, this is, I, I think, important to talk about because he was seen in this earlier footage looking at his phone, and, and a lot of people were saying, oh, my God, it was more example, like he's because there was the hand sanitizer incident, too. One police officer you know, using the hand sanitizer, it was, it was indicative of the lack of urgency that the police seemed right. to be manifesting. But he did. He was talking with his wife on that phone, and he went, you know, as any, any reasonable person, police officer or no, would, he approached the door and he was held back. And like, I look, I get that you know someone who who has actually a you know, a person in a compromised situation. Maybe the police are supposed to say, no, don't you're not thinking clearly. We're going to handle this. But then right. they didn't handle it. They waited around. Right. And actually, the impulse to like immediately go and attack the shooter, like guns blazing, like don't wait, is the right one. <laughs> is is the train is what the training says. Like throw yourself at the shooter. You will get shot. The next person will get shot, but maybe the third person gets a, gets a shot off. Like mm -hmm. that is what they are told to do in these situations. It's what these police specifically were told to do, which is why it's so frustrating that 400 of them sat there for more than an hour. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. I mean, I understand why people initially thought that the man on his phone was another sign of the police irresponsibility. But as you've made clear, that's not what it was. He was communicating with his wife. Uh, it And again, I also understand you don't want necessarily someone who has an emotional connection to someone in there. Maybe you think they won't think as clearly they won't be as effective in taking the person out. But as you said, it's not they didn't go in there themselves. So right. all they did was block someone from potentially uh, offering aid, saving the life of, of, of children of his own wife. I mean, it, it is awful. And you'd think that more out of the hundreds of police who were there, you'd think that more than one would have an impulse to go in. But I guess it's this scary group thing that happens. Yeah, because there, there was so much holding back. There's other footage where there's other police officers going, no, wait, 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 we're not ready. Like, what are you waiting for? It's just, it's not what you're yeah. supposed to do. It makes no right. sense. I, like, if in the first mass shooting, or the Columbine, the one, you know, the one that inaugurates our horrific era of mass shootings, they didn't un quite understand that you thought it was more like a hostage situation. We, you know, we have to think this yeah. through. Now we know we've had 25 years of these things. You like, that's not what you do. That's you have to, right. you have to confront the shooters as quickly as possible. And parents wanted to go in. And again, that's the same situation. I understand you don't want to put more people's lives at risk because the police are supposed to be the ones putting their lives at risk. Right, exactly. And they didn't. And it's so, and you know, this is probably an area of, of libertarian um, left overlap, uh, frustration with the lack of accountability by our, our police officers, our law enforcement, agents of the state, they work for us, who will not take any, who will not put themselves in harm's way at all, even though that's literally their job. Right. I mean, I understand it. I, I, I sympathize with the with fear of death. Right. Obviously. But yeah. again, that is your job. That's you're supposed to be doing that, not civilians. Yeah. Yeah. Right. A absolutely. And easy for us. I don't mean it to be, you know, like right, yeah. quarterbacking like, oh, well, I would have, you know, grabbed uh, the nearest rifle and marched in there. Yeah. You don't know what, how brave you'll be in a life or death situation. But right. the police uh, have specific training to be brave in a life and death situation, right. and they have the authority to exercise, to to kill, to exercise lethal force in a way right. that no citizens do. So, and, and in fact, when they use lethal force wrongly, they have a lot of institutional protection um, to not be held right. accountable for it. 
and and I don't <laughs> you and I probably also agree on that that we don't like a lot of that institutional protection. But part of the justification for it is that they need to be empowered to do things like intervene in these kinds of scenarios. So if they're also not intervening when they're supposed to, why on earth do they have these protections and this right. and this lack of accountability? Right. I mean, also, if you again, like you and I are both saying, we don't know what we would have done, but we're not police. So if you don't want to risk your life, then just don't pursue that job. Right. Right. And and, and then you don't plenty want of people who are people. not police were prepared to risk their lives. Right. And were actually right. held back from doing so. so yeah. It's and just, I think uh, it's really. Im- oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think it's really important that to emphasize that this was the training. I think a lot of people are confused about that. They're like, well, it's easy to say because you weren't there, but how do they know? But no, that is the protocol. So they violated protocol. Right, right. Well, it's uh, I, we keep talking about this on the show, the Uvalde um, issue, because it just, the more that comes out, I mean, it's it's the unendingly horrifying story. Obviously, horrifying in what happened, but horrifying uh, too in just the utter disregard for basic, common what the training, the every it, it could not be worse in in how it was handled, and uh, desperately need to see some accountability there. The Biden administration is allocating $2.3 billion in funding to help communities invest in infrastructure that's designed to withstand the effects of climate change. The administration is also working to deploy $385 million to the states to fund cooling centers and provide Americans with air condition amid the extreme heat that people across the country are experiencing. Hmm. What do you think about that, Katie? Well... I think what's really fascinating about this is that Biden is not declaring uh, climate change an emergency officially. He's been calling it an existential threat. So that's a quote. He says climate change is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. This is an emergency, an emergency, and I will look at it that way. And it's great that he's looking at it that way. But again, he is the president. And he could declare it an emergency. He's like kind of open to looking into it. He's like emergency curious, I guess, uh, but not willing to commit to it. And that's probably because if he were to declare an emergency, there are actually things to do. So he could um, have the ability to use the Defense Production Act to ramp up production of renewable energy products and systems. But instead, he gets to just like dedicate a pitiful amount of the budget to uh, climate change. I have emer- national emergency fatigue personally. I think everything is chalked up to existential crisis. But why would we give, why would we spend more money, you know, propping up renewables and then also be going to Saudi Arabia to beg for oil? Like what is the, what is the U.S. Right. government's energy policy? I don't and, understand the yeah. policy at all. I don't even know whether I'm against the policy because I cannot tell what the policy is. Right. Well, it's also interesting because the Pentagon budget for the fiscal year 2022 is like 21 times as much as the amount of money that Biden's putting into reducing emissions. And, of course, uh, because the military is such a great perpetuator of climate change, uh, none of this stuff is going to offset the military-related emissions. So... Yeah, it's, you know, and I think another example of of Biden trying to talk the talk without walking the walk. And again, I get that you have, uh, what is it? What did you call it? Uh, Fatigue? National Uh, emergency fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. But this does seem like, you know, climate change does seem pretty emergency-ish. 
that seems like one that's kind that's, of emergency ish. I'll, I'll go with kind of emergency ish. What's that? Yeah. You're yeah. also emergency curious. You dab, you dabble in it like Biden. No, I just I want to I want to go back to look. I want to take whatever reasonable precautions we can take to counter the effects of climate change. Uh, but look, I the people the people want lower. They want lower gas prices. They want lower prices of everything. We need to do. You know, the it, it's clear that more. I think more investment in renewables in the short term is not going to do enough good. Um, I, and clearly, the administration knows that too, right? They know they need to get more oil from somewhere, especially if they want to continue this for some reason. They want to keep this war with Ukraine and Russia going, or they're, you know, they're not right. taking the steps to absolutely slam the brakes on it. They're saying Ukraine needs more money for defense, weapons, et cetera. That's great. Here you go. Here's a check. And uh, nobody is complaining about it, really, except like a couple of Republicans in Congress, actually. Right. Which is shameful because it'd be nice if any progressives actually spoke out against uh, escalating a proxy war, which is, of course, having major economic and climate based uh, ramifications that are terrible for the planet. Anyway, though, uh, it seems that Biden has made another gaffe. Surprise, surprise. But this time on the subject of climate and cancer. Let's listen. And because it was a four lane highway that was accessible, my mother drove us and rather than us be able to walk. And guess what? The first frost, you know what was happening. You had to put on your windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. Yeah, and then Didn't I saw Glenn Kessler, the Washington Post fact checker, tried to cover and say, well, he, he's had, you know, a non- dangerous something removed in the past right. so I'm but sure he didn't say true. he yeah. had cancer he said he has he I, I have cancer like in the present uh which hopefully he doesn't or he should be disclosing yeah. that right that's going to change our right. uh our who's uh who's running in 2024 bingo cards pretty substantially yeah, I wonder if he got cancer in the coal mines that he toiled in, or mm. maybe he was exposed to some carcinogens in South Africa when he was arrested trying to visit Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. Maybe Just when he was in that uh, that, that helicopter with uh, Brian Williams and Hillary Clinton, or yeah. whatever, <laughs> in, yeah. in uh, you yeah. know coming under fire in uh, wherever right. you know those people exaggerated got their exposed to some their lives. right got exposed to some some carcinogenic bullets right. or something. Yeah. Right. Never know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's uh it's not a very again, not a very serious gaffe, I guess, but it's for Biden. Put, put right. people on guard like what are you talking about? What Right. Uh, well yeah, CNN pretty low stakes for a Biden gaffe, yeah. <laughs> CNN's technical director, Charlie Chester, said the media company's next focus will quote that they will beat to death like they did with the pandemic. Yeah, will be climate change. Let's take a look. We're going to start focusing mainly on climate, um, uh, climate like global warming, and like that's going to be our next like um, I don't know like what's the word? It's our it's going to be our focus. Like uh, like our, our focus was to get Trump out of office, right? Without saying it, that's what it was, right? So our next thing is going to be for climate change. Awareness. So that's like the next pandemic like story like that will yeah that will will be to death. But that one's got longevity. You know what I mean? It's not like 
there's a definitive ending to the pandemic or, you know, like, it'll taper off to a point that it's, you know, not a problem anymore. Probably think it's going to take years, so they'll probably be able to milk that for quite a bit. Hmm. I guess my immediate reaction to that video is that that's not a very good strategy. Like, CNN is going to hemorrhage viewers even more because, I mean, the climate change has been an issue for years and I mean, it's been something that's been covered for years and years and years. It doesn't have the, the pandemic came out of nowhere. Right. And then was a very dominating media storyline. Uh, Trump's, you know, kind of sudden lurch into the political sphere and, you know, and, and all of that as well was a different kind of story that like climate change is, is, is not a new story. So I don't if, if they're really planning to just, you know, change to like all climate change news all the time, I think many more people will tune out than are already tuning out. But uh, and you always have to take with a grain of salt, you know, whatever. That's a that's another Project Veritas yeah. video where they, you know, right. somebody it's interviewing not the head of CNN, but, you know, somebody who right. works there and agreed to go out for drinks and then was kind of, yeah. you know, ranting about their workplace to over drinks with someone they did not know right. was an undercover conservative activist. So right. who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's quite the own that Project Veritas thinks it is um, as far as like uh, what as far as making it new or making it something people would watch. I've always thought that, you know, people could report on climate change in a way that was interesting and that got people to watch. Uh, think about how much they focus on the weather and they show these extreme images. But the problem is that the reporting on climate change can't ever really go after the, cor the culprits because they can't expose the way that, you know, certain industries or pr sponsors of the of the networks are perpetuating mm. this. Mm. That's interesting. So that would require a different kind of reporting. Yeah, I mean, they do that kind of reporting sometimes. I, I think it's not, well, I don't know if they do it CNN or not, um, but they, you know, there's good investigative reporting on climate stuff, but, uh, but I don't know, it always has the, a, a kind of a, I, sensational bent to not sensational because I know it it does matter and I know climate change is real and right. it's affecting our planet but the sometimes the level of I, I think personally I mean, you might disagree that the, the level of earth is doomed you know there will be no life on the, this planet will be uninhabitable in 12 years or something and then that doesn't come to pass and then a certain amount of people it, it, it sounds very sky is falling like there's a range right in how bad the outcomes from climate change will be from like kind of bad to really bad and we don't know exactly where we're going to land in that and if we do something because there are some i know some big you know climate change is the most important issue people who are like it's too late we're already screwed nothing can be done we're right. you know we're a fallen we're a fallen people and our judgment day is upon us where it's like okay then then why, why bother doing anything yeah. at all then we can maybe put off judgment day delay it a little bit i would agree with you though that there should be more i can't believe i'm gonna say this word i hate this nuanced reporting on it though because of the like you were like fatigue the the sky is falling fatigue i think you're right that a lot of people who are climate change skeptics hear something that's predicted or promised and then it doesn't come to to fruition which is good because i'm glad we can still live and breathe the air on this planet but i think that there needs to be better explainers about what things will look like how we're not sure about the timeline but these are the trends and this is something that could happen and certainly we want to do everything to prevent that because it is scary and these heat waves are deadly literally deadly yeah well i'm on board with that
Ukraine's first lady paid a visit to the U.S. this week and pleaded with Congress and the president for more aid and weapons. Now the U.S. will send four more high-mobility artillery rocket systems to Ukraine as part of the next military aid package. I guess we weren't using those anymore. That's the 16th package of equipment sent from U.S. stockpiles, and this comes as the Air Force is considering providing fighter jets to the war-torn country. And it's pretty good timing. Last week, the House passed a whopping $839 billion defense package. As 180 Democrats and 149 Republicans joined together in the passage of a historically high military budget. According to Matt Taibbi, roll call revealed at least $58 billion was allotted for congressional additions, which includes money to respond to disasters and the war in Ukraine. But that's not all. Matt reports that billions of dollars of weapons the military did not seek were also stuffed in the bill. Journalist Matt Taibbi joins us to discuss further. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Katie. How's it going? Robbie? Good to see you. Good, you? Good to see you. Um, excellent. Excellent. You mentioned in your story that this was an underreported story. Uh, why was it so un underreported? you think? Well, so there was a, uh, a unique provision this year in the defense bill, uh, thanks to, I, I believe it was an, an amendment that was inserted by a Michigan uh, Congresswoman named Melissa Slotkin that forced the Department of Defense to reveal what are called congressional additions, which is really, you know, it's it's another word for earmark. Basically, it's, it's, it's essentially what it does is it forces the, the Pentagon to publish a list of uh, things that Congress requested uh, for the defense bill over and above what the president asked for. So that's kind of a new thing. And the only outlet to report on that report was uh, Roll Call. A reporter named John Donnelly put it out. Uh, I did something on it this week. And apart from that, I don't, I don't think anybody's touched it. You know, we And why do you think that is? Well, it's it's this is just sort of uh, par for the course for de defense budget reporting. Uh, every year we have these, almost every year, we, we, we've been having these enormous historic increases and there's really very few people on these stories unless they can find some kind of partisan angle on the defense bill. Like this year, for instance, it was Republicans who opposed, you know, a measure that would have purged the, uh, the defense department of white supremacists um, years ago, it was Donald Trump uh, refusing to invoke the name of John McCain, who uh, after whom the bill had been named. Uh, unless they can have a, an angle like that, nobody really likes to publish the story of both parties overwhelmingly uh, voting for these massive defense increases, which have now happened under both Trump and Biden. You know, we're sending so much money and aid and weapons uh, to Ukraine. It's kind of perfunctory at this point. They, they ask for more. We send more. Um, I, you know, we've talked to a lieutenant colonel on the show before who raised the possibility that we might actually be, we'll, it, there will come a point where we've depleted our own stockpiles, like our own ability to defend ourselves in the it, admittedly unlikely, but, you know, not impossible event um, of an attack. Uh, it seems to me that most Americans, voters, common people um, are not nearly as committed to helping out this endless war as the American government is uh, in, in very pretty, pretty bipartisan fashion, although to the extent there's any opposition, it seems to me to be among a small number of uh, Republicans who are like otherwise derided as crazy by the media. Um, you know, what do you make of that dynamic? 
Yeah, clearly, look, there have been already record no- amounts of money spent on weapons. We, we had the $33 billion um, addition that uh, you reported on before uh, that the Biden administration sent. The the Congress this time, uh, of the, f- the $58 billion that the House added to the bill, which is an extraordinary number, I mean, think about that. That's like almost the amount that we spent on the first year of the Iraq war invasion, for instance. Um, uh, the Senate this week also uh, announced uh, an even higher number than uh, the House had approved. They went to $845 billion as opposed to $839 billion. And all they really had to do was say, most of this is for Ukraine, and that was it. You know, <laughs> like, they, they essentially ascribed all this to um, more money for Ukraine. So if you take that $33 billion and you add all the money that's now been um, added to the defense budget um, as sort of essentially war funding for Ukraine, it's, a, it's, it's getting to be a pretty enormous number really quickly. Mm. Right. Are and you an surprised enormous... by the... Go ahead. Are you surprised by the media's appetite for uh, funding the... Uh, well, I would say for funding a proxy war or escalating a proxy war in Ukraine. Is this typical for the media to be so um, rah-rah war? Well, absolutely. I think we had a, a brief moment in time between, say, 2008 and 2011 where there was a, a little bit of skepticism in terms of coverage of the Pentagon and defense spending. Uh, obviously, during the Iraq warriors, we saw this sharply escalating amount of uh, spending for war funding for Iraq, for uh, you know expanding the garrisons in the Middle East. Um, then there were cuts in 2011 under Barack Obama. But then since then, we've essentially seen these, the defense budget creep back up. And th- this is always reported um, as a positive, uh, virtually always in, in the press, if it's reported at all. Again, most of the time, this, the, the the really interesting thing about this from a media perspective is, is that there's just not a whole lot of coverage of where all this money's going. Uh, nobody knows uh, how it's being appropriated. Uh, obviously, the Pentagon flunked its audit, which was another underreported story. Um, and you know, basically, you have to rely on outlets like Roll Call, which do a great job of following these votes. But but that's really it uh, compared to other types of spending. This gets this gets very little coverage. And we're told by the media constantly that this is, you know, a uniquely, um, savagely partisan time where, you know, Republicans and Democrats can't even be in the same room with each other. You know, nothing can get done in Washington because there's so much acrimony and mutual distrust and dislike. Okay, maybe that's true on some issues. Doesn't seem to be the case on foreign policy. Doesn't seem to be the case on military spending, where there's just tremendous and really always has been, or at least my lifetime, I guess, for uh, tremendous bipartisan uh, ideas about military spending and foreign policy that I, I think are out of sync with what people want. But in Washington, it's unanimity of approach, not it's virtual unanimity of approach. Um, uh, it, we totally Doesn't that totally fly in the face of the narrative we hear from the mainstream media that these are like these uniquely vicious times? Absolutely. And again, and, that, and that's why I, I stress it's always so interesting to watch uh, how the unanimity is downplayed, right? Like every year when these votes come out, um, you know, th- there's extraordinary bipartisanship 
on defense spending. And, and also, by the way, on this new phenomenon of earmarks coming back, um, we saw this year, there again, this $58 billion of congressional additions. Uh, it was both parties heavily indulging uh, in, in these new types of appropriations. Well, not new types, but they're basically coming back. Um, these ads to the budget by, by Congress. Uh, and instead of focusing on that, and we, we had members of Congress saying things like, this is the definition of a bipartisan bill, right? Mike, Mike Rogers from Alabama said that. Um, instead, when you, when you watch this in the news, it tends to be, if there's any traffic at all, it tends to be about something like, you know, the, the Republican caucus refusing to go uh, for the uh, amendment about white supremacy, uh, you know, the program to eliminate that. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, this bill, bank bailouts, uh, you know, the, the CARES Act, there was enormous unanimity about all, all sorts of things. Um, but we just don't, we stay away from those types of stories because it, it kind of defeats the narrative that there are, the, they are complete uh, adversaries about everything. Good points. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Of course. Good to see Thanks, you both. Matt. Katie, take care. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is no stranger to going viral. This week, a video of her getting arrested at a pro-reproductive rights rally circulated all over the Internet. But AOC and other lawmakers got some blowback for appearing to have faked being handcuffed, even though some pointed out that they were asked to put their hands behind their backs and police don't need to handcuff someone for them to be arrested. Co-host of the Low Society podcast and writer Angie Speaks wrote an op-ed published in Newsweek titled AOC's Fake Handcuffs Reveal Politicians Have Become Influencers and Nothing More. That delves into AOC's latest viral moment. Angie is with us now to break down the meaning of all of this. Hi, Angie. Welcome to the show. Great to have you. This this kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, when Joe Biden said, I was arrested visiting Nelson Mandela and then when he had to clarify, okay, I wasn't arrested, but I was stopped. Um, and so, you know, it kind of reminds me of that, but what do you make of all of this? What do you mean by they've just become influencers? Well, I thought the incident uh, was the perfect opportunity to sort of highlight for everyone how um, the, this sort of new generation of politicians is influenced by the performative conventions of social media. Um, and, and I guess I, used AOC as an example because she has sort of a track record of this kind of thing. The Met Gala was yet another kind of moment that was obviously engineered for social media that was laundered as activism. Uh, this is yet another one of those things. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a sort of, it's a new, newly emerging mode of operation that's becoming more ubiquitous. It reminds me of the, you know, for a while there was a drive to appear in like hearing in congressional hearings, uh, congressperson you know asks a really kind of stupid question that's more like a statement of their professed beliefs because they want to clip that they want it to be in a commercial or whatever or a, something for their supporters. Um, so the, you know the phenomenon of of political figures you know wanting to harness whatever the the media or whatever new media it is to kind of rally support is not exactly new, but I, I do take your point that um, yeah, the social media influencer kind of uh, framing is probably a useful way for thinking about, uh, about what they're, they're doing now. So how is it, 
what would you identify as the distinguishing you know aspects of this phenomenon mm. yes that was one of the critiques i got when i released this the piece of oh this isn't a new phenomenon, um, but there's something particularly pernicious about the incentive structure of social media and the way that the attention economy functions on it. Um, if you look at influencers and the way that influencers behave, um, histrionics, uh, doing these huge things in order to get attention, uh, starting drama with other people, um, all kinds of different things are um, a lot easier to do. And also it, it, this realm allows people to renegotiate the political in, in very emotional terms since social media is about um, and, and also allows people to stir up emotions and to um, get spectacle to people much easier than they previously could. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's important to look at the way the conventions of social media are now influencing our politicians, especially ones who are millennials and have sort of been raised in this primordial ooze of uh, technology. I agree that AOC is especially media savvy in general and social media savvy. And I do think that there's a danger of social media activism or performance replacing real actual like legislating and governing. But I do think in this case, AOC has been pretty good on the Roe v. Wade um, rollback. I think she's offered a lot of tangible suggestions. She's pushed Biden to do certain things. She's pushed him to articulate why getting out the vote is important um, in terms of specific policies. So I think this is an example, perhaps, of her putting her money where her mouth is more than other examples. And I do think... Um, to me, I don't think that they were, I know that there's some controversy over this, and I know you guys spoke about this on Rising on this very show this week, but I don't think that they were actually faking uh, having their ha being in handcuffs because AOC put a fist up in the air, so that would have required like magic wrists or something. But even, even then, it's sort of, there was something incredibly performative about it. And the idea of an imaginary audience is something that is part and parcel within the mode of the influencer. It was almost as if she was saluting fans or some kind of like imaginary audience. Um, and, and also uh, the incentive to kind of construct a personal fable uh, is part and parcel of the conventions of social media as well. Um, and yeah, she's incredibly savvy in terms of this mode of the influencer. Um, and of course, yeah, she's she's, uh, you know, on the issue of abortion, like you said, um, but at the same time, she wasn't the only one who was there who participated in, in the stunt. Um, it seemed like it was something that was done specifically for the eyes of social media. Um, and yeah, that, that was sort of the observation I was making. Well, yeah, especially go ahead, Kim. Well, especially in, in, you know, look, you've got AOC who shows up for this sort of rally, for this sort of event, um, it makes it performative, you know, makes it, it makes a big splash. But where, you know, this is somebody who says, and this is kind of the problem I have with the squad in general and really just what I would, what I would classify as like woke um, leftism that's kind of emerged. A lot of this kind of came from the Bernie Sanders movement, right? And then the head of the beast was cut off largely by the establishment Democratic Party. And now there's this movement without really a leader. And so what it's kind of emerged into is this sort of, you know, now they're, they're 
fighting for what they say they're fighting for rights of all these different groups of people when the movement originated as for the working class, helping workers, helping everyday people, helping bid them, build up the middle class in America. And so they say, well, we're for the workers. We're, that's who we represent. That's what we're all about. But then they go and they just focus on what I would say are more social issues. This one's very important. I And I agree with AOC on this largely and uh, on, on this matter. But um, you know, I would have liked to see her show up for like the Amazon union workers, right? But where was she for that? And so these types of things, it's annoying when we see her get so much attention for this and then say, I'm for the workers, that's what I care about, and then don't, doesn't really actually show up for the workers. I and would that, also I think, say that, yeah. I would also say that, um, this uh, social media and liberal feminism also kind of go hand in hand. I mean, Me Too was largely a social media driven movement. Um, and many of the people who kind of came up on the back of that have now become influencers. Uh, feminism is sort of taken on the mode of operation of the influencer. So it doesn't surprise me that this moment that was quite clearly engineered for social media um, and the sort of response, the emotional response uh, that's elicited from social media um, is sort of wrapped up with this specific issue. Um, it, it's quite commonplace now, especially when it comes to women, women's rights, uh, and also females in power. It's become this weird, pernicious mode of operation where you're supposed to negotiate on emotional terms rather than political right. ones. And this sort of performative duress, uh, especially something that we constantly see at AOC doing this performative duress, it's a, it's a power move. Um, it's not it's not it's not something that's wrapped up in in weakness or victimhood. Uh, she's one of the she's a congresswoman in one of the most powerful nations on on the planet. Um, and I feel like these performative stunts make people forget just how powerful she is. And also the people other people hit there, Ilan Omar, other Democratic representatives that were there. Um, and it's sort of like activism is cosplay in, in my mm -hmm. in my opinion. <laughs> I'm glad that oh, I was, I was going to say, I think that there is definitely a role for political theater. I think that there's nothing wrong with political theater, especially when, again, you're accompanying policy um, with it. But I do think that there is, for me, the real cosplay that's happening is with the squad calling itself progressive and then voting as they recently did for right. a resolution to expand NATO a resolution mm. that urges NATO countries to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. That to me is a real cosplay that I find so disturbing. And that I, I think that should really be called out. Uh, just wanted to, to nudge that into the conversation because I think that's probably the area where there, there really is, to, for me, the biggest disconnect between the progressive image and their actual uh, policy positions. And, I, and this speaks a little bit to what we were talking about with Matt Taibbi, uh, and another clip about how war has become kind of rebranded and there's a lot of bipartisan consensus for war. And I, I do think that if you're going to call yourself progressive, that you have to be uh, you shouldn't be for expanding NATO or escalating the proxy war in Ukraine. Yeah, and Sorry, that's kind of my point. Well, and, that, and that's and yeah. that's sort of my point of this is that you know I, the movement kind of there was this big movement, a big buildup in the movement in 2016, and then it sort of had nowhere to go, and where it's gone is into this more performative, more of these social issues, and then and then we're closing the door to the actual things that the movement really rooted itself on. 
And now that's gone by the wayside. I don't even know where it is. And now if you're actually not called a progressive, if you still believe in those economic principles and being anti-war, but if you disagree on maybe some of the social stuff, then suddenly that makes you no longer progressive. So they can call themselves progressive, Katie, unfortunately, because that is the new progressive movement. It is about the social issues more so than it is about being anti-war and, 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 you know, that's where it's at now unfortunately and aoc i think shows that in this situation and like i said not showing up for amazon well we got we got to leave it there angie speaks thanks so much for joining us thank you so much for having me secretary blinken what about shireen abu akhlet she was murdered by israeli forces Right, CNN just agreed to this. These are your two greatest allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Israel. They have uh, murdered American journalists and there have been absolutely no repercussions. And you're sitting up here talking about the freedom of press and democracy. The United States is denying sovereignty to tens of millions of people around the world with draconian sanctions for electing leaders that you do not like. Why is there no accountability for Israel or Saudi Arabia for murdering journalists? It is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a journalist in Palestine. I deplore the loss of uh, Shereen. Um, she was a remarkable journalist, an American citizen, uh, as you all know. And there too, we are determined to follow the facts and get to the truth. I'm sorry, with respect, they have not yet been established. Yes, it has. For, no, they have not. If we were looking for a, an independent, credible investigation, when that investigation happens, we will follow the facts wherever they lead. It's, it's uh, as straightforward as that. That has not yet happened, but it's something that we very much want to see happen. And we'll have time after Thank the you. panel, of course, Thank to talk you. more about that. That was journalist Abby Martin at the Summit of the Americas back in June. Abby Martin is the host and producer of The Empire Files. And with President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and Israel complete, she joins us now to weigh in on the latest out of the Middle East. Welcome back to Rising, Abby. Thanks so much for having me, guys. What are your impressions of Biden's recent trip to the Middle East? Well, it's funny, just weeks after that question that I directed toward Blinken, you know, about the two greatest allies that the U.S. empire has, which are just egregious human rights abusers, you know, on the heels of this failed summit where Biden's administration failed to even garner support um, to basically reinstate the Monroe Doctrine in Latin America while bemoaning the human rights abuses of places like Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. It's just such a stark contradiction <laughs> to then have you know Biden go. And again, like everything in Biden's administration, it was just an abysmal failure. I mean, the whole trip was a huge political risk, especially with all the pressure on Biden saying that Saudi Arabia was a pariah state, saying that he wasn't gonna meet with Salman. And then, of course, you know, he kisses the ring, or shall I say, bumps the fist, and it just caused just an uproar. I mean, this huge political calculation, because of his failed ratings, that actually puts him lower than Trump at this point in his administration, with gas prices astronomically high, inflation super high, and it just failed. I mean, at the end of the day, Saudi basically came out with all the concessions and Biden got nothing. Abby, um, I, first of all, I just have to say awesome questioning. Really cool to see that. One thing that really stood out to me was when Blinken says, you know, we're waiting on the credible credible investigation. So when it came to Saudi Arabia and Jamal Khashoggi, we had Turkey that went in and, and did an investigation. Of course, it was in their country. So but they were doing the investigation. But who is doing the credible investigation 
of this murder of this journalist in Israel um, and in Palestine? Where, what is the, are they, are, so is Israel investigating themselves in this situation? As Where's they always, the? As they always do, yeah, as they always do. And what's so funny, I mean, kind of what was unspoken there is basically calling CNN essentially discredited. Um, because they, along with AP and several other news organizations, had already done independent investigations with forensic analysts, um, audio analysts, and analyzed eight, you know, all of the video reports with the eight eyewitnesses. So it was just super conclusive at that point. And then as we saw, of course, weeks later, the United States released their own um, declaration that, yes, it was the IDF who fired the bullet that killed Shireen Abouakleh, but uh, amazingly, according to the State Department, it, no, this wasn't intentional. Of course, Israel would never intentionally kill a journalist. Right. This is actually because of the confusion, you know, mm -hmm. just lending to that discredited narrative that it was because of Palestinians, armed Palestinians, that just caused confusion and just Israeli soldiers just accidentally killed this journalist. We know that that's already completely false. Well, Blinken needed to portray it as if there's some ambiguity, right? Because then, then he, he thinks he could persuade some people that, well, the U.S. government is, you know, what can we say? We don't know for sure what happened. Uh, and, you know, a kind of ambiguity that benefits our government in its, right, in its moral flexibility and its wildly careening from one moment to the next about we, Saudi Arabia should be a pariah state. No, wait, actually, we have to beg them for help. You know, the, the changing, oh, we're doing this for humanitarian reasons, this for real politic reasons. We're ignoring these humanitarian, like, it's a, it's a foreign policy that makes no sense, but has become, I think, the, almost the hallmark and signature um, uh, uh, condition of the Biden administration. And it's becoming just so obvious and glaring. Um, I mean, just the fact that, you know, the media's coverage, I mean, look at the, the vast majority of the corporate media that was actually up in arms about the fist bump and Jamal Khashoggi and how, you know, he met with Salman, even though he said he was not going to, and how he didn't really do anything to hold Saudi Arabia accountable for killing this Washington Post journalist because this Washington Post journalist was one of their own, right? Even though he wasn't an American citizen, it was just this gross, grotesque thing that happened. He was dismembered in the embassy. And I mean, of course, Biden did nothing, even though he said he was gonna do something on the campaign trail. But look at the stark, uh, basically difference in coverage from Shireen Abu Akhla's murder by Israeli forces and the Jamal Khashoggi um, assassination. I mean, it, it's really amazing how little the press talked about Biden's trip to Israel and these contradictions and these human rights abuses. And instead, um, it was all focused on Jamal Khashoggi. Now, this was an American citizen, Shireen Abu Akleh, a revered Al Jazeera journalist who was targeted. I feel the evidence points to the fact that she was directly targeted and killed. This isn't the first time that Israel has done this. In fact, this is a long line um, of direct targeting and killing of journalists and just an egregious violation of international law. But, you know, as Blinken so clearly stated, you know, this is, <laughs> this is, uh, they're just going to be wishy-washy. They're just going to basically uh, have false equivocations of, you know, their adversaries and just remind us, no, Israel and Saudi Arabia are, are necessary allies. And that's exactly what Biden said going into Saudi Arabia. He basically made this big pitch saying, no, we need to do this trip um, because we need to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. I mean, as if they're not already normalized. Basically, what came out of it, um, no gas prices are not going to 
become lower. No Saudi's not going to do anything to help that crisis. Instead, Biden actually said that they're thinking of selling offensive weaponry now to Saudi Arabia, which I don't know what the difference is between defensive and offensive in terms of the war in Yemen, but it's just absolutely incredible what a failure this was. And then when you go to Israel, all Biden did was basically expanded Trump's policies, the Abram Accords, um, what Jared Kushner, you know, put into place that actually was personally profiting from his foundation, um, this normalization, this peace deal that they herald as some sort of monumental thing, when really all it is is just more weapons deals between authoritarian governments. And Biden goes over there proclaiming he's a proud Zionist. Um, it, it was just so insane on so many levels that these are the two greatest allies of the United States. And at the same time, we claim to be the moral arbiter of human rights and democracy in the world. I always say that Israel, you know, with uh, politicians constantly bragging about the special relationship between Israel and the United States, Israel is like America's wife. And we kind mm -hmm. of appear in public with her as a, as a partner. And Saudi Arabia is like America's side piece where we don't actually tout that relationship, but we have a very close relationship and we're in bed with her also. And I think we could see this like in, in the difference, as you pointed out, Abby, uh, between the reporting on Khashoggi's uh, murder and the murder of uh, Shireen Abu Akleh. You know, it's funny. Biden actually did say one good thing. He actually... I think this was off script because I can't imagine that his handlers would have allowed him to say this <laughs> scripted. But he basically, during a pitch, I, I think it was with the Palestinian Authority, he, he actually said that his Irish Catholic upbringing yes. like, is it, similar to the resistance of Palestinians against the <laughs> occupation. It was like, whoa, whoa, yeah. you're actually comparing this to the British occupation? Great job, Biden. But of yeah, course, seriously. just total capitulation to Israel. You know, what's I think a, another big failure that came out of this is the fact that just days after Biden returns, Putin actually goes and meets with uh, Tehran. Um, and, you know, it really just is an indication of how failed these sanctions, the Western sanctions have been mm -hmm. not only on Russia, not only in, on Iran, but also the entire global south, where all of these countries that the U.S. wanted to cripple with sanctions, especially, you know, in light of the war in Ukraine, have basically converged and are working together outside of the dictates of Western capitalism. And that is just a huge indictment of the failure of Biden's policies as well. I wish well, there was more discussion in the world about just, you know, with, when it comes to American foreign policy, just the basic discussion of should we be selling our weapons to anyone? I mean, I, I just I do not understand this. I don't understand how our country can develop weapons for our own defense, for our own security, and yet we then allow our government to sell them to foreign governments to be used often against us, and not even just to foreign governments, but they give them to groups and, you know, not even not even organized uh, government groups, right? And they and then they end up being used against us. And that should be more of, a, I think, a larger discussion, whether or not people agree with our relationship with Israel or Saudi Arabia or any of that. Right. It's, happened with, get into it's happened with ISIS. Right. How right. many right. more times does this have to happen? As, as of as of battalion. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fact that Hillary Clinton is out there saying we want Ukraine to be the Afghanistan model, I think should just oh be God. a real. Oh, my God. Like, well, it just baffles my mind that every day people can wake up in this country and think that this is OK to funnel billions of dollars and weapons to these groups around the world while we are denying um, basic human rights to people at home. It's just absolutely mind boggling. Yeah, look what we do to our own. Look what we do to journalists here in this country, too. Right. I mean, we yeah, put them in jail. Assange. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Free Assange. Abby, given, 
Yeah, Free Assange. Given that, um, who's someone you've also talked a lot about, Abby, so thank you for doing that. But also given that the um, human rights abuses of Israel are so much less highlighted than the ones of Saudi Arabia are, and given that you and Mike Reisner made this great documentary called Gaza Fights for Freedom, can you just tell viewers uh, and listeners what kinds of, the, the ways that Israel has targeted um, press, members of the press in the past, than that, because this is not an isolated incident with Shireen Abu Akleh. I mean, I can just speak to the Great March of Return. There was the UN investigation of uh, the 2019 peaceful protests where thousands of Palestinians peacefully resisted against the blockade, the medieval siege that's been implemented that denies them of basic human rights, dignity, mobility, um, counts their caloric intake, denies them travel to do cancer treatments and stuff like that. Um, these people were mowed down mercilessly. 62 people mowed down in one day, one day. And the press just made it seem like, oh, just Palestinians died, you know, using the passive voice. Um, with that ongoing massacre that happened over the course of several months, there was disabled people that the UN found were directly targeted children that were directly targeted medics that were directly targeted. This includes um, Razan al-Najjar, um, medics that have testified that they were just hit with barrages of bullets the second that they would leave the ambulance to try to aid people in need, war crime after war crime. And with that, um, two journalists were actually targeted and killed, as well as several others were targeted. Luckily, they survived, but they are permanently disabled. Um, and this is just a long line. I mean, this is just the the latest instance, of course, Shireen Abu Akleh. That's why I'm not surprised. It is just certainly egregious that an American citizen, you know, aside from being a revered Palestinian journalist, the fact that an American citizen can be targeted and killed by this staunch U.S. ally and just no repercussions, nothing at all. It's just continued subsidization of this apartheid state and funneling of weapons. And let's just face it, Biden touting the fact that they got, what, $300 million in aid that Trump cut sadistically, they wouldn't need that aid. If the U.S. stopped subsidizing this apartheid state, Israel would have to negotiate peace. But because of the U.S.'s running cover perpetually for the state of Israel, that is why they're able to get away with this. Mm. And I just hope that the pressure continues to mount. Um, BDS continues to build steam and we will finally see uh, a peace negotiation in our lifetime, but I'm not holding my breath for Biden to oversee that. Well, Abby Martin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks, for Abby. A Minneapolis theater where Dave Chappelle was set to appear suddenly canceled the veteran comedian's sold-out Wednesday night show only hours before it was scheduled to go on. The First Avenue Theater faced backlash from some in the community over hosting Chappelle after, of course, his controversial set in Netflix's The Closer. They tweeted, quote, The First Avenue team and you have worked hard to make our venue the safest spaces in the country, and we will continue with that mission. We believe in diverse voices and the freedom of artistic expression. But in honoring that, we lost sight of the impact this would have. We know there are some who will not agree with this decision. You are welcome to send your feedback. And uh, they're getting lots of feedback. Uh, it's, if they're saying we're responsive to comments and people criticized us for not hosting Chappelle, they're going to get even more criticism for now canceling him. So uh, at, the, at the very last minute, so this was mere hours before the show was uh, supposed to go on. And it's not like this succeeds in 
deplatforming Chappelle or whatever because now he's just so their their tickets are being transferred. They're not ripping off the people who bought these tickets. I mean, they're inconveniencing them, I guess, but they're being transferred to another venue, and the show is going to go on elsewhere. So uh, I I mean, you know, this is a this is actually a pretty clear sort of idea of canceling sort of thing. They they are even L- using literally the language canceling of, it. It's literally canceling it. They're using the language of oh, it's it's not safe. It's not a safe space if. Chappelle makes jokes about people. Um, I, I mean, I think it's idiotic, but uh, what do you say? Well, I think it's, it comes across as pretty opportunistic or insincere or cynical because obviously these concerns were there before. Right. To the extent that you think that he's creating an unsafe environment, like what changed? What, you didn't realize that before? Right, it's, you, you know, like, he's, he's a well-known controversial figure. It's yeah. well-known exactly what he's controversial for. So, like, what are you, like, what are you, like, what are these people thinking? Either you're, you don't want to have him, don't have him. Fine, like, there's somewhere else right. he, that will host him. But if you're going to host him, obviously you know that some people are going to be critical of that. Like, you, you're just, you're really bad at your job. Your job is like a, a venue yeah. that books people if you don't understand that there's a, con- like, this controversy is not a, is not a, you know, insular controversy. It's very well known right. to general audiences Unknown. at this yeah. point. There's been tons of right. reporting on it. So to just to not realize that, um, I, I think it's a great idea to go forward and you know platform controversial people and just kind of say, you know what, you can criticize if you want, but we're going to host a range of people or whatever, which is the, generally these policies. But uh, then to back down because I don't know, a couple people got mad at you online, or may, I think it looked like some people said they were going to protest. Who knows if that would have actually happened, but uh, it's very dumb, very dumb. I mean, it's. I think it probably, it's inconvenient, but it probably also helps Chappelle in some ways, right? Because his fans, I think, are going to just be that much more protective or double down that much more. And I'm sure he will double down that much more. But it's yeah. not about, honestly, what what is going out into the world. It's just about what's happening at this theater. Yeah, yeah. Because That's it's not going, it's with. not going to, <laughs> right? It doesn't stop him from talking or expressing uh, these, which again are, are jokes. I, he is he is told offense he is told offensive jokes. That's been part of his career for forever. It was something that used to be celebrated when they were seen as transgressive or, I guess, mostly targeting conservative sensibilities or, or predominantly targeting conservative sensibilities. Now he has. Uh, this different range of, of jokes he's expressing. So now all of a sudden it's very dangerous and lots of, you know, conflating words with violence, I would say, going on. Uh, so it, now he's a, like a radioactive, right, borderline being viewed as right wing, even though he's like not right wing at all. And, it could, you know, continues to criticize um, conservatives on any number of occasions. But, you know, he's joking about people you're not supposed to joke about right now. And it's just it's getting it's unbelievable the amount of, or it's, I guess it's perfectly believable, but still kind of astonishing, the amount of negative coverage it's bringing him from you know, mainstream outlets that would have previously and had previously celebrated a really provocative, you know, offensive comedian. Yeah, I mean, they have the right to do whatever they want, obviously, but I do think it just almost feeds into Chappelle's appeal for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it feeds into Chappelle's appeal and also feeds into the idea of a certain kind of liberal as very, um, you know, oversensitive or like upset or the conflation of words with violence or, you know, can't take a joke, et cetera, because there's not, (laughs) you can't, he's still going to be telling these jokes, he's just going to tell them elsewhere. 
Uh, and, and, right. and just the kind of cowardice on the part of on the part of this specific venue, a venue, by the way, which I, I'm seeing on Twitter. I don't know anything about this venue. It's called First Avenue, but um, people are saying that. So they once hosted an all-night after-party jam with Prince wearing a cod piece and singing about how he wants to do unspeakably non-consensual things to your body. Was once known for how many times the replacements puked on stage during a single show. Now they're now it's it's got to be a safe space. It's got to be very safe. We wouldn't want anyone to feel unsafe. Well, yeah, well, Prince, good thing Prince isn't around to see this. <laughs> not that I'm happy he's not here, obviously. Right, right. So it'll go on at a different venue, and it's just, I don't know, it's just more of this um, yeah. this very easily mocked kind of cancel culture thing. But I, yeah. I assume, well, yeah, I mean, so I, I see. I to be, yeah. Go ahead. I, I guess I, I also do see, I, I think that there's also, you know, there's so much transphobia, and on a kind of attempted legislative level or successful legislative level, I do understand where people are coming from. I just don't think this is the way to solve that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm sure I'm, I'm against probably most of that legislation. Um, I just think you should be able to, you know, tell, telling jokes is not, yeah. is not an act of violence and the jokes are going to be told. And if, if, you know, if you specifically can't tell jokes about, like, one group of people, it's almost like you're treating them to, in some kind of precious way that is almost insulting. Um, but In, uh, Infantilizing. Infantilizing, yeah. So, all right, well, we'll continue following this. And also there's been so many, there's been, I, this broke last night. Um, I, and there's 20 articles about it already. So yeah, it's just like calling more attention to what Dave Chappelle is doing. Absolutely, yeah. like backfiring kind of Streisand effect territory where you're like, okay, right. well, if we cancel right. him, then he's not. No, he's just getting even more attention for doing it. Right, so. exactly. Yeah. I just hope he doesn't spend all of his set uh, talking about this. Yeah, I agree with it's that. It's not as funny. It gets, it gets a little unfunny. It gets a little, ironically, it gets a little triggered, snowflakey. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, just we'll some, have more just rising. Some helpful in... feedback for Dave. <laughs> joke, joke feedback for joke security over here. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, AP and Reuters did an interesting fact check that trended on social media yesterday about whether or not COVID vaccines alter DNA. Now, before we get to the fact check, I want to give you a little background information. Since the announcement of mRNA technology being the method used to create COVID vaccines, there have been people in the scientific community who were skeptical that it was the best method of all the vaccine methods we have available. The concern being that it hadn't been tested enough, it hadn't been used before, and there were still some lingering questions. Now, one of those questions being whether or not the mRNA molecule can penetrate the nucleus and alter or combine with our DNA. Now, some experts said they believed it could. After all, prior to the pandemic, mRNA technology was being studied as a promising new way to alter genes. The idea being mRNAs could alter bad genes that make a person susceptible to various illnesses and diseases. And that sounds pretty amazing. If we could avoid the diseases that we're genetically prone to, I think most of us would definitely want to do that. But the problem is it was all still very experimental and mRNAs hadn't quite gotten to that point yet. So when the vaccines were being rolled out, some scientists who knew what mRNAs were designed to do warned that they could possibly change our DNA. Now, obviously, this set off a frenzy amongst people who were already vaccine hesitant, and anyone who cited this as a concern was then labeled a conspiracy theorist. So that is where this, came, this claim came from, and apparently a study by some Swedish scientists, which we'll get into, was trending on social media to the point AP and Reuters 
decided to issue some fact checks. So here's AP's fact check. Social media users are citing months-old study from Sweden to push the unproven theory that mRNA COVID-19 vaccines permanently alter recipients' DNA. Experts and the study authors say the research is being misinterpreted. Here are the facts. I want to uh, just, just so you know, hone in on that word permanently. So they are kind of giving some, quanti- they're qualifying it a bit. But let's see what the AP's fact check article says. So in the article, it says, claim a Swedish study shows that Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine changes recipients' DNA. AP's assessment, false. The study tested whether the vaccine's mRNA could be converted to DNA and found that this was the case in certain lab-altered liver cell lines under experimental conditions. It did not assess whether the vaccine alters the human genome or what the effects of that would be, according to experts and the study authors. Experts say additional research is needed because the findings in the lab setting cannot be used to make inferences about what might happen in a human body. So I found this statement interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, I noticed AP didn't call this a conspiracy theory, but instead an unproven theory. So this gives me a little hope that maybe the trend of labeling anyone who questions something is a conspiracy theorist, maybe that's waning. Secondly, rather than just dismiss the claim outright, they did state that experts say more research is needed. So it's inconclusive. Now let's look at the Reuters fact check. A Swedish study conducted by Lund University does not show that mRNA COVID-19 vaccines permanently alter human DNA. The authors said their study could not be used to draw conclusions with human DNA as as they used cell lines in lab petri dish for their work. Now, Reuters actually links us to a Q&A with the study's authors on the Lund University website. And the authors say the reason why they even took up this study was because of a previous study published by MIT, which indicated that SARS-CoV-2 virus mRNA can be converted to DNA and integrated into the human genome. Now that study set off a frenzy and received an enormous amount of backlash for quote unquote, feeding the vaccine skeptics. But the Swedes wanted to further study this. And what they did was they took human liver cells to see if the mRNA would penetrate the nucleus and integrate with the DNA, and they found that it did. They said, quote, we show that the vaccine enters liver cells as early as six hours after the vaccine has been administered. We saw that there was DNA converted from the vaccine's mRNA in the host cells we studied. These findings were observed in Petri dishes under experimental conditions, but we do not yet know if the converted DNA is integrated into the cell's DNA in the genome, and if so, if it has any consequences. So the reason they chose liver cells was because during testing, a Pfizer study injected the vaccine into mice and found that 18% of the vaccine accumulated in the liver after 30 minutes. So these researchers decided to try it on human liver cells. And they went on to say, quote, it's important to bear in mind that the liver cells in the study are more genetically unstable than our own liver cells. So they give you that Uh, you know, qualification of this whole entire study. So we don't really know what it would do in a living organism, a human being, and to our liver cells, but they saw what they saw in the Petri dish. And they said, quote, we understand that the study would attract attention, but we think it's self-evident that this type of research should be pursued. We have a new vaccine and it needs to be tested in cell and animal models and also in humans in various ways. The results might be surprising, but it's also a bit surprising that such studies do not seem to have been carried out before. So that was the whole fact check that was going on on social media with AP and Reuters. Um, I thought it was really interesting, the framing of it, how they didn't conclusively say it does not. Now, 
when people, when experts first came out and said, you know, there's a possibility that it does this, and then people are saying, oh, I don't want to take something that's going to change my DNA. There was a, a, an enormous amount of fact checking that came out from various media organizations, health organizations that said, no, it does not do this. And they stated that conclusively. And then MIT came out with a study in December of 2020 and said, eh, actually, you know, kind of looks like it might. And now this Swedish study from Lund University says, yeah, maybe, and more needs to be done to be studied on this. And now you've got AP and Reuters saying, okay, inconclusive. I mean, that's what their fact check basically came back at. Rather than say, it doesn't, you conspiracy theorist, you. They actually said, inconclusive, more study right. is needed. And that's what these scientists are saying. So uh, I just wanted to point that out. It, this is just another example of people being labeled conspiracy theorists, told no, you're wrong, without evidence. I mean, we just don't have the evidence yet. And it's okay to say, we don't know. But that seems right. to have been... It's it sounds like the label used in the fact check is actually very accurate. It is inconclusive. That's right. there are there's some theory. reason right. to think that description might be accurate, the changing of the DNA, but we that was only under certain conditions. We don't know that, that how well that would be replicated in in actual, you know, human beings. And, and it might right. be the case that infrequently it could happen that way or or, or not at all or frequently we just don't know it, it seems obvious we, we should do more testing because you know given that covid is not going away anytime soon you know there's going to be there are going to be new more people are going to be taking vaccines for this and, and other diseases are going to be interested in using this technology we want to fully understand it uh you know given that it is going to be a, a, a prevalent part of our response to a disease that will be around um, so, so yeah, there definitely has to, has to continue to be reason. You can't just say, no, 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 we know we have it figured out, nothing to see here and like move on with it when now they're clearly saying, yeah, we don't, we don't completely know. So we need to yeah. do more research. So Katie, I want to ask you because, so when the MIT study came out first before the Swedish one, they were, those scientists were hounded, right? They were told, how dare you publish this? This is just going to feed the conspiracy theorists and the other sign, the criticism that they say they received wasn't really on the science itself. It was just on the effects of what the science would do to people and their minds. And we see this a lot in a variety of scenarios, not just with vaccines and COVID, but we see this, you know, this sort of dynamic of, well, you know, religion will do this a lot, right? They say, well, we don't want to even talk about this other thing, like an alien, <laughs> you know, like what if there are aliens on, I know Robbie loves this. What if there's aliens on foreign planets? You know, we can't talk about that because then there might be no existence of God, right? It, it kind of, even if we discover that there might be one day. What do you make of this, like this kind of shielding? Should we shield for the greater good? Or do you think we should just be forthcoming all the time? Ooh, uh, wow, that's a hardball. So early in the morning for that one. Um, <laughs> well, it does remind me a bit of the conversation that we are having about the way that people are just labeled conspiracy theorists. Um, without necessarily uh, evidence of that. So I think that that is a dangerous tendency. Um, in terms of, uh, I, I think that, you know, it's a, I understand why people are afraid of misinformation. Robbie, I can't remember if it's misinformation or disinformation when it comes to right. public health, but I do think that that causes a credibility problem. Disinformation right. is if you're purposefully doing it to try to dissuade, and misinformation is just if you mistakenly, I think, have the wrong right. information is that is that how the two can, that's how it can be defined well i've now yeah. I'm, I'm now seeing some people essentially define disinformation it, the information might not actually be false but it's coming from a source 
that has some agenda or something that's hostile oh, to the person wielding the term. So, so that's how they allow the well under the theory that. Russia had something to do with the Hunter Biden laptop, even though we actually don't know that that's the case. And there's right. like the most credible theory is that that's not the case. But they would, if it had been planted by or or, the, or whatever the hacking of the emails, it can be disinformation, even if the information is true, because the source is like a, that, that's according to the disinformation reporting people. Obviously, I think that of framing course. is pretty suspect and is you know, there right. is being used to get around the fact that we're just talking about um, true information. But that is a good point, Kim. That that. Um, the, the epidemiologists, the public health bureaucracy's obsession with messaging and like, oh, oh, we can't trust people with the literal truth because what if that causes them to do X, Y, or Z? And then they're, they're committing two mistakes, one being that, yes, philosophically, I would say that like people just deserve the truth anyway. But then B, okay, even if you agree that like public health messaging should be should be done to promote some goal, and if that means like keeping the truth from people, we should do that. But the public health people have expertise in public health, not in public opinion. Like they right. don't know. Like, and, and they're the first people to say that only you know experts in your field are the only one can have an opinion on everything. I'm like, okay, but you're not a polling expert. Like, you don't know what kind of messaging tracks with people. Like, they'll, they'll say, yeah, well, we don't want to encourage. Or like, we didn't want to push. Sometimes they didn't want to get boosters out because what if that makes people less likely to get the initial vaccine? Well, you have no idea that that messaging yeah. would cause that. You're not an expert in that. So you know, stick stick to the science. And those are the people who say who tell everyone else they have to stick to the science. Yeah, I, I just really think the greater good, doing something for the greater good is always telling them the truth, no matter how mm -hmm. the truth changes what you think the greater good is, it's it just it is what it is. Yeah. You know, if alien there's aliens on foreign planets, Robbie, I'm sure of it. And when you find out I know. it's going to make you question. We haven't uh, we haven't done aliens. I always get a lot of <laughs> hostile feedback when we discuss aliens because I'm more of a more of a skeptic. skeptic. You're such a skeptic. You think we're yeah. alone in the universe? I don't know. So anyway, I'm alone. Yeah. I don't know about you, but <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, let's leave it there. Uh, that's it for us for today and tomorrow on Rising. We'll be passing the baton over to Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky, of course. Uh, but we were so glad having Katie Halper with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And uh, right. we look forward to having you uh, do it from in studio, side by side, uh, someday yes. soon. <laughs> All right, everybody, be that. sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to check out our podcast. You can download it so you can listen to us on the go. And thank you guys so much for watching. So be sure to watch Emily and Ryan tomorrow, and we will see you next time. Bye, Bye everybody.